Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Welcome to the Asia Tech Podcast Studio. This is Pitch Tech Asia. My name is Graham Brown, joined in the studio by Amrish Naya. Amrish, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. The co-founder and director of Biorhythm. We're going to talk about obstetrics and fetal monitoring. We're going to talk about what the challenge, the problem is in that market. And it's a huge market as well, and it touches everybody effectively. Um, we're going to talk about your journey as a company and the interesting sort of genesis of your team as well, how you met. So you met here in Singapore and talk about how you sort of came together, the, the context in which you formed that team. Um, let's get started. Let's put Biorhythm on the table. What is it? So... The reason everyone at Biorhythm gets out in the morning is in pregnancy, I mean, every preventable death, every preventable injury, every preventable complication is an absolute tragedy. And the key word here is preventable. Mm. And the solution to that is better monitoring and better monitoring for fetal distress and extending those capabilities from the hospital to the home. And that's essentially what Biorhythm does. Right. It's bringing those capabilities that were in hospital and extending it to every day of a pregnancy to make sure the pregnancy is as safe as possible and we get a safe and healthy delivery. That's awesome. what we do. Yeah, solving real world problems, right? You, um, before we dive into your pitch deck and have a look at that, you would assume Singapore, like places like Japan, for example, have very high sort of levels of obstetric care and the sort of mortality rates in pregnancy must be extremely low. I don't know the numbers, but, you know, so why is then that a problem? So you're absolutely right. Singapore is one of the lowest in the world. Um, but when you look at high-risk pregnancies, I mean, any pregnancy that could lead to fetal distress, mm -hmm. and the risk factors sort of shift from developing to developed. And Singapore, I mean, unbeknownst to many, it's uh, got the highest rate of gestational diabetes in the world yes. at 18.6%. Uh, well, we were just talking about that as well, diabetes and the food that we eat here, right? Exactly. Has a lot to do with it, right? And it's also, I mean, genetic factors, racial factors, mm. the food we eat, and all these sort of king's diseases that come along with the developed world doesn't preclude the fact that we need better monitoring. Right. And the priorities change. So patients want more convenience. They want better care without compromising safety. Clinicians want to be able to provide higher quality treatment to everyone. So... It doesn't mean that we have good obstetric outcomes that things can't be better. Mm. So that's exactly what we do. We're trying to make things better. Okay. Well, let's start. I want to jump into your pitch deck, Amrish, and sure. have a look. And I'm not going to do it necessarily in completely the order that you've done it. But I want to put, for example, I want to put the, the numbers at the top. You've got a, a slide here. And if you're listening on the audio-only version of the, the podcast, we will talk through what we have here as well. On slide nine, you've got the um, data on the actual market size itself. So we can understand how big this market is. And if I can just kind of read some of the stats off here and you can kind of like just explain what's going on. Go for it. So you have the maternity care market, 165 million live births each year. What market, which geographical region is that? So uh, we're looking at globally. Yeah. Uh, this is 165 million. Yeah. And you're looking at our primary markets, which is Victoria and Australia and Singapore. We're looking at 40 to 50,000, right. 30 to 50,000 births a year. And some places like Indonesia produce a Singapore every year. Yes, yeah, so exactly. Uh, it's a very young market, isn't it? It's a very it? young yeah. market. It's a growing large middle class market. And uh, for the high risk cases, I mean, these sort of uh, have varied statistics across different countries. I mean, mm. looking at Singapore, where it's roughly 20%, where um, various things like high blood pressure, diabetes, you know, mm. advanced maternal age is a big problem in developed countries uh, as compared to the developing markets where the percentage would be higher. 
and contributed by infectious disease, sanitation, hygiene, nutrition. Mm. So the market size is sizable around the world. Mm. It's unevenly distributed, I have to add. Um, but yeah, there is a, a sizable problem to be solved here. Right. You put it here, 50 million high-risk pregnancies, 30%. But you say 20% here in Singapore. But e even in a, an advanced market like Singapore, like you say, the king's diseases, mm -hmm. you know, as we sort of move away from the developing world and the health issues there, it comes with another bunch of health issues which do affect pregnancy as well. Like you say, diabetes and older pregnancies as well. Exactly. And that's one of the big things that's been happening in developed countries. So the metric for developed uh, markets would be number of pregnancies uh, mm. per mother or per population, as well as the average age. Uh, yeah. It tends to go up as the countries become more developed and more economically developed. Mm. Um, and this, again, doesn't include problems that large geographies have. So, for example, Australia, um, where care is spread across a huge distance, uh, mm. Canada, US. And these problems are also... Uh, Big ones, how do you maintain quality of care or step-down right. care across these geographies? Mm. So high risk would capture everything that uh, would possibly hurt the mother or baby. Right, in this case. right. And then on top of that, all the cost factors as well, which we're going to dive into, because we'll have a look at the actual problem itself. Apart from the health risks themselves, there's actually servicing this as well. So I'm going to jump back to slide, uh, I think on slide three. Um, why do we need to rethink maternal care delivery? Well, we've looked at some of the numbers there already, 165 million pregnancies each year, 25, sorry, 20% high risk. What is the issue? We're doing all right, surely. What do we need to change? Because you said it's, it's always about changing and improving, right? What do we need to change here? So you look at the way care is delivered. And first of all, it's a good place to start is the epidemiology, mm. the numbers. Um, Explain to me what that is. I'm not an expert. What's so the... Can't Epidemiology would be basically the statistics around disease. Right, so um, disease, okay. So the high-risk pregnancies and the different forms, um, you're looking at an increase in preeclampsia, which is a type of high-risk pregnancy in the yeah. US, by 20% and severe cases by 50%. And mm. so now you're needing more women coming back into the hospital. And this is a system which was designed in the past and not designed to sort of provide the sort of advanced care to a hugely increasing number of people. Mm. And the way we can rethink that is the way other specialties have thought about it. Um, look at cardiology, for instance, where 90, a lot of the observational tests are being done outside the hospital. Right. We're given monitors to go out and test. Self-testing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and pregnancy is one of those things. I mm. mean, um, we have to consider that most pregnancy is not a disease. Uh, pregnancy mm. is actually supposed to be a happy, healthy thing. But for the small group of patients, how do you deliver constant quality care mm. to a growing number of patients? And using in-hospital expertise, you know, requiring devices that could only be used by a midwife, um, mm. a limited number of hospital beds for across all the diseases, you know, how do we sort of alleviate those problems on the infrastructure? And part of the problem is extending, part of the solution is extending capability to the home. Yeah. And how do we do that in a safe manner, which actually carries very little risk? Mm. And that's the key word here. How do we develop solutions that address a growing number of high-risk cases mm. um, with an existing infrastructure in sort of a risk-free manner. Mm. And we believe that's what we are doing here. Right. Uh, we are rethinking the technology so that we can transfer the monitoring to the home safely. Right.
and we'll look at the solution before we dive into the technology as well. Is it a solution that monitoring can be done just by the mother? Because I, I guess there's always going to be a little bit of pushback, isn't there? I mean, I don't know how you know, you know the medical community very well. There's always going to be a bit of an issue, isn't there, with people saying, well, you know, th there is a fact. There's a reason why you have a midwife or an obstetrician, you know, using this, you know, very expensive equipment is because you know, it needs to be done properly and therefore it's all centralized and looked after and so on. You know, has that been easy process getting sort of decentralizing all of that, democratizing and giving all that equipment to mothers? And of course, again, like what you said, it's a mindset, right? This mm. is the way it's been done for 30 years. This is the way it's been done for 50 years. And obstetricians and midwives are very comfortable with that. Um, yeah. But looking at the way we're looking to deliver care, mm -hmm. um, it's all about access to care. That mm. means how what type of people can use this, what environments can it be used in, and that comes to fundamental technology and design, mm. um, considering the human factors in all of this, mm -hmm. and considering the context in all of this as well. So addressing those concerns needs, first of all, research to be done yep. that can convince the obstetricians, the key opinion leaders, and secondly, proving that the technology works at home. Uh, I think that's very important, and mm. that will quell a lot of the doubts uh, that the clinicians would have. All right. Well, let's have a look at that technology. Yeah. You've got a, you've got a bunch of slides in here. There's like three slides just coming up here, which sort of break the technology down in terms of um, you know the solution. You've got the self-assessment and monitoring, um, starting at the top here, the holistic approach, and then at the end here we have the what, the app, the mood tracker. So maybe we can talk through this. Start at the top, the holistic approach. Femom, is that how you femom? Femom. Femom, sorry. So we uh, we need a <laughs> we needed a good way to put this across. So fetal right. and mother monitoring. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So femom, what is it? So essentially it's an IoT solution yeah. that's prescribed by doctors to high risk pregnancies. So that's one of the ways we address the doubts by the doctors. The doctors control who gets it mm. and what type of data they're getting out of it. Right. So the IoT solution comprises of three things um, a sensor, a mobile phone application and a web application for doctors. Mm -hmm. So the sensor is essentially the whole part that democratizes um, uh, or sort of liberates the technology from the hospital. Um, it's something that the mothers can use themselves in minimal training. It gets you fetal and maternal vitals. It gets you contractions, all the information that you get in a hospital. Mm -hmm. And the point of interaction here is the mobile phone. I think this is the, the sort of central pivot across the whole system. Because right. um, they all have them. The they all have that, right? It's so. the huge point of interaction. Uh, yeah. You're able to deliver questionnaires on how the mother's feeling. Um, you're able to use it as a gateway for the data. You're able to use it as a communication tool. And that's why it has to be central to the whole system. Mm. Uh, and I think that's one of the key unique selling points here is that we're focused on the mobile phone and how that acts as the central point to the whole system. Right. It's not just collecting data for the mom, is it? There's no. more to it going on here. Yeah, right? so it's not just collecting data from the sensors. Yeah. Um, so it's a point of interaction where doctors can customize a set of questionnaires for the mother. Mm -hmm. um, every mother gets asked four standard questions when they go to an obstetrician. Do you feel any pain? Has the fetus moved? Uh, do you have any leaking liquid? Do you have any bleeding? Um, mm. And these are things we can track across a much more frequent uh, uh, question and answer session right. through the mobile phone. And the web platform basically delivers visualization for the doctors. It delivers analytics, and the analytics is spread across all three. It's spread across the device, the mobile phone, and the web application. And we look at it as bite-snag meal kind of data, mm -hmm. uh, where bite-sized information 
do we need to react quicker, snack and type information, you know, can it be displayed on a mobile phone and meal size information, which are reports that the doctor can use to actually manage the patient. Right. So sensor uh, that is able to capture maternal fetal vitals, contractions, mobile phone, which provides the point of interactivity and the web application, which actually trends the information for the doctor mm. so they can make timely decisions on care. Right. So they're getting a dashboard of, you know, however many women there are out in the field undergoing pregnancy at different stages, different terms and so on. And they, these are just the high risk pregnancies that they've prescribed, right? That's right. Right. So, okay. So they're getting this information fed back to them. And therefore, does it, does it then push information to them and say, hey, look, there's an issue. There's an alert here because somebody's reported or the numbers are up or because that would be the issue in non what's the decentralized care if i can say that word you know where it has to be centralized because now there's an issue of a um the woman might not realize it's an issue you know something might be happening with her numbers and she said oh no it's just i've got a bit of cramp not a problem b they then have to report that and c they have to get into the hospital or somebody has to come to them so can you sort of walk us through that situation because in a high-risk pregnancy things may go wrong right so yeah exactly and what happens then that's the whole point of monitoring right so a doctor only sees a patient for less than 1% of their lives, and now we're providing a full movie yeah. uh, of the patient's life, uh, almost, so to speak. Um, but yes, so there will need to be a then what? If something happens, and then what? Um, and that's where the analytics come into play. So moving monitoring to the home would mean a whole deluge of data being flooded into the hospital, and this needs to be gated by automated uh, metrics that the doctors can use, thresholds based on standard guidelines, Mm. Uh, that exist currently and will exist as the standard of care evolves. Um, so yes, the doctors get to group patients by disease, first of all, so they can ask them the same questions, use the same metrics uh, to monitor. And we restrict the amount of information the mother will receive, um, partially because we don't want overreaction. Mm. Um, I think more than the underreaction is the overreaction that we're worried about. We don't want mothers going more often to the hospital. Um, but we give them information that able to quantify their pregnancy, like the contractions that they're feeling, you know, tracking their mood, for example. Mm. Uh, but the actual fetal heart rate data and the sensitive information is to be interpreted by a doctor or a uh, midwife. Yeah. And that is seen at the end of every day or at a frequency determined by the hospital, depending on how high risk. Uh, if it's very high risk, it could be continuous monitoring mm. where a nurse is assigned to a high risk group and monitors there. And using our advanced analytics, I mean, one of the problems of fetal heart rate monitoring in the past was sort of subjective analysis of the data. What does that mean? So doctors, um, it's very type two type thinking, right? So they've seen 100,000 traces and therefore right. they know what's wrong. Uh, or they have very instinctive uh, feelings about what's wrong. Um, yeah. The ability to diagnose uh, for junior doctors, however, uh, would depend on how many times they've actually seen something. And using automated sort of objective metrics that this is the number, this is the metric, and therefore you can make a decision based on this metric. Mm. Um, makes care a lot more consistent, mm -hmm. especially in the pre-labor phase. Right. In the labor phase is pretty well defined, I have to say, but in the pre-labor phase is when a lot of the subjectivity and the skill of the physician comes right. into play. And we don't want that to be a factor in how a pregnancy is managed. It should be consistent. Every woman should be given the same quality of care. Okay, good. Well, let's have a look at what then happens in that quality of care. Let's have a look at some of the benefits 
through your tests and your your focus groups that you've run and it's important as well to you know do this in the context of all the stakeholders yeah. in this process it's not just it's going to benefit the doctor it has to benefit the mothers as well you've got a slide here with some data if we can just flash the pitch deck up as once again Slide seven, the benefits of Biorhythm's remote monitoring solution. Let's talk about this. There's a whole bunch of data in here. What is the key one here that we're looking at? Which is the, the main set of data that you take away? If you only look at one point and then we look at the other ones as well, but what, what is the main lead point here? So um, basically we're looking at five uh, key stakeholders here. Doctors, mm -hmm. midwives, patients, hospitals, and payers. And these are the main, what we're looking at here is the hospital and the payer essentially, because they are the ones who actually drive standards of care. Mm. And they're the ones who actually deliver the care. Um, and over here, we're looking at how the improvement in technology. So a key feature here is that we have switched the technology from what currently exists. Uh, they use what is called a Doppler ultrasound, where it's positioned over the baby's heartbeat, mm. as compared to an ECG, which is in a standard position, and it captures it anyway. So it uh, improves the signal quality. Um, and how that signal quality impacts uh, the hospital and the payers are that better decisions can be made. Um, in America, it's found that uh, home monitoring leads to reduced length of neonatal ICUs. In Belgium, it's found that it actually reduces the amount of hospitalization a mother would require when she's currently pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, in Denmark, it's shown to reduce costs for different groups between 16 to 77%. That's phenomenal. And uh, finally, patient satisfaction. I mean, we've gone out, we've interviewed mothers and a lot of it is centered around the woman herself. I mean, as much mm. as we want to address the statistics around pregnancy, we want to talk to every story. We want to talk to every story of pain, of anguish. And we really want to make sure none of that happens again. And a happy woman, a stress-free woman would naturally lead to a better outcome in pregnancy. Yeah, And that's something that's very, very central to us and very important to us when we've designed the system. Yeah, I'm more likely to have another child. Yes, which is a Singapore great would be really so there happy. You go, there you go. Let's get behind it, everybody. Let's you know address that falling birth rate. Well, okay, I think you know what jumped out at me there was that obviously the cost reduction of up to seventy seven percent per patient was that was a Danish study you said. Yeah, so Denmark is generally one of the more advanced countries when it comes to collecting data. Uh, yeah and actually making the data available for standards of care. Australia's done a phenomenal job as well. Mm. And what they found is patients who are otherwise hospitalized could have gone home with continuous monitoring, and this automatically reduced cost. Um, yeah. So um, it's self-explanatory there. Two weeks of hospitalization versus at-home monitoring for two weeks. Mm. And the cost was reduced by 77% for this group of patients called PPROM, where uh, the fluid in the sac actually leaks mm -hmm. uh, before uh, term. And... That was a big indication for the Danish government. So the Danish government's actually rolling out initiatives on remote monitoring being offered to high-risk pregnancies. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a pilot study done in 2014 or 2015. So, yeah, that kind of progressive thinking will eventually spread to the rest of the yeah. world. Yeah, well, the case study evidence is there, isn't it? And I think people will see the benefit in the long term. Yeah. You know, maybe there's a few sort of barriers to get through, you know, mindsets like you say. Um, before we, we look at your team, because there's an interesting story about how you all met, um, I'm just interested in, in the actual devices itself and the cost of producing those devices, because this is key, isn't it, to this, it's especially when we do this in the context of Asia, you know, because um, off air we're talking about places like Indonesia and so on. These are massive markets and cost is going to be an issue, you know, if we can get into these bigger markets where... You say in developing markets, for example, where the, the, the risk factors are much higher 
in, in pregnancy. Um, tell us a little bit about the cost to produce one of these units. So again, that's where the fundamental shift in technology really took place. I mean, um, rather than using ultrasound machines, which are mature and have reached a plateau in terms of cost utility, um, we're using electrocardiograph technology, mm. which is, I would say, even more mature. Uh, cost is being brought down uh, per unit, and it's essentially a better device for home use, uh, I would like to stress. Mm. Um, and we're still exploring how different business models could yield better value to each one. And we're looking at a price of 1400 to $2,000 per trimester. Sing dollars. Uh, US, US dollars right. um, per trimester. But again, that's variable. Um, mm. It would depend on the type of service we provide. It would depend on uh, the extent to which uh, we are involved in the service provision. Mm. And finally, it's not just about what we are charging, but what we are saving. Mm. And we have to look at that in context. I mean, mm. we did a simulation for an Australian hospital with 4,000 patients a year, and we could save maybe a couple of few million dollars a year yeah. uh, if we adopted new standards of care. We understand not everyone will go through the new standard of care, but it, the saving is sizable. Right. And looking at that from a value healthcare perspective, I think it's important. Right. So just to talk about the kit itself, which you give to the moms, 2,000 up roughly, that's the, the physical cost, not the cost to you or anything, but the actual cost to produce this thing in terms of like per trimester. Yeah. Is that right? So that'll be... 1400 may be um, a cost we charge the mother for three months of monitoring. Yeah. Um, and that'll be the cost. The cost of developing the kid is still, um, I would say, being uh, sorted. Um, right. Because as we go in development, we're naturally going to reduce the cost even further and further. Gotcha. And um, we are midway through development where we are sort of trimming the excess fat off the device. Yeah. Um, and so the kit we give the mother the main cost of it will be the fetal heart rate monitor that mm. we are developing and the analytics that we are developing as well. But we're going to provide ancillary devices like blood pressure monitors, glucometers, mm. where it contextualizes the information for the doctor mm. and with the mobile application as well. And for the hospitals, it's basically that huge analytics platform that we're going to be providing them. So yeah. that's what's going to entail within the $1,400 that we're looking to charge. Okay, great. Let's talk about your team, Amrish, where you met. So we were talking off air a little bit about this. If we can just flash it up on the pitch deck, maybe we can have a look at your team here. Um, we jump to slide 11. Where, there you are. So you're the co-founder, your fellow, you, oh, there's three co-founders, right? You met where? So um, I was actually the student in the co-founding team. Yeah. And it's, it, was, it really started at NTU. NTU so, here in, uni in university in Singapore. Nanyang Technological yeah. University in Singapore. Um, and I was working under a grant under Professor Pina Mazziliano as a mm. postgraduate uh, degree. And we worked with Dr. David Fu at Tantok Seng Hospital. Um, it was on a cardiology project, um, which is not what we do now, but, but where the technology was really built. Mm. And that's where we really found out um, like the utility of the technology, especially for home monitoring, um, for real-time monitoring. And when the grant ended, we sort of took this outside of the hospital. We realized, hey, we have the skill set. We have engineers and doctors working in the same room, solving real problems. Mm. And we spun off and we built the technology largely around the cardiology field. And we realized, like, look, this is not just about cardiology. This could be applied to so many other problems. And we could be solving real problems and other specialties. And that's where we looked at fetal heart rate monitoring, where, hey, it's a very niche area of heart rate monitoring. Mm. But it impacts so many lives. Uh, but why? Why, why did you choose that and not 
the other hundred different applications it could have been. What, what did that mean something to you? You thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. Because you're an engineer, aren't you? By yes. Your background, right? So you, you know. Or so I claim. Apparently. Right, okay. <laughs> but well, looking at what's on the paper, but the point being is you could have built many different types of things, right? So why did you choose that? So it was really about delivering care to the people who currently are underserved. Mm. And for us, I mean, that was a big driving factor. We really wanted to make an, a huge impact in this world and how we deliver that care. And for cardiology, we made a number of missteps, I would have to admit. I mean, every startup, when we begin, we make we learn those lessons. And mm. um, we really learn to consider how the doctors use this, the human factors in all of this. When you come out of university, you're like, yeah, I can do this 10% better than someone else. I can do this 5% better than someone else. But that doesn't really matter if the human factors are not considered. And in cardiology, it was slightly more complex because you're dealing with a large uh, ecosystem of devices, hmm. um, the value proposition you provide to doctors, and the product was structured in a slightly wrong way, um, which we will go back and rethink about. But then we looked at fetal monitoring where the space was empty, actually. Um, the fetal monitor had not been reinvented in 30 years. Hmm. Uh, it's largely in hospital. And you're looking at a huge number of preventable incidents in pregnancy and in Singapore, in a developed country, in developing countries as well, um, there was a huge problem to be solved. And it mm. really struck us um, because this is not going to go away. I mean, pregnancy is going to exist as long as human kind exists, you know. It's, an, it's something that really tugged at our heartstrings. Right. Um, well, I'm curious about that. And it's always interesting to sort of dig a little bit deeper, you know, as an engineer as well. I mean, why didn't you build an electric car? You know, and solve that problem because that you know, you're talking about impacting the world and you know the big projects that really touch people's lives rather than you know technology that kind of exists for technology's sake. So you know, why does this get you up in the morning and feel like you know you've you're on a mission? So uh, I come from a family of doctors. I mean, um, I grew up in clinics all my life. My dad, mm. my dad, my uncle, um, my cousins. I mean, um, uh, I was probably the disappointment of the family becoming an engineer, <laughs> uh, but um, it. The health problems really st struck me uh, mm. from a young age and when I was a, a student. And I think this can be best exemplified by uh, someone I met a few years ago. Mm. Um, it was at a conference and there were a whole host of doctors speaking uh, around healthcare and technology. And everyone was like, yeah, I got this robot. I got that. Um, then this doctor from India stood up and he was a doctor in Germany before. And he gave up everything and he decided to treat patients for free in India. For the past 30 years, he's been treating patients for free. Wow. And his mantra was, no one should be left behind. No mm. one, everyone deserves care. And the painful thing about that was, um, it was not sustainable. It was a very old school way of thinking about philanthropy and how to change this world. It's like, mm. I've got to give up everything to do this. Yeah. And I think that's really what gets me up in the morning is that our generation, the burden on us is to solve social problems with technology in a sustainable way. And healthcare is actually one of those areas which will affect us perpetually. Uh, and if we can make someone's life better by providing good healthcare, if we can make this world a more equitable place by doing that, I think that's, um, I'm young enough to be altruistic about this. Yeah, <laughs> that will never change. <laughs> so that's really the driving force behind all of this. And the whole team is driven by yeah. the same thing. How do we provide sustainable change, make social impact using technology as an engineer. So that's 
sort of my contribution to this world uh, and our team's contribution to this world as well. Mm. What's your sort of longer term goal with that? I mean, you've mentioned, for example, India. Obviously, you have the the, the roots as well, your family. Even though you're Singaporean, you, you, you'll have connections there as well. So, um, you know, what what about, you know, the fact that we're here in Singapore, it's a six million people country, very small in the grand scheme of things, even though very advanced and wealthy. You have your your um, studies being run in Australia, for example. Again, it's a, it's a big market, but in the grand scheme of things compared to some of the markets here in Asia, it's very small, right? So what, what are your thoughts being here in Asia and what you've just said in terms of, you know, what the opportunities are? I think we're very privileged to grow up in Singapore and uh, don't get me wrong about that. I think uh, we are hugely privileged and the developed markets provide us a great test bit for research. You know, we've got great universities to actually conduct this research, develop this technology. But I think it's the onus is on the companies to actually bring this globally and international. Mm. Um, Singapore's a great place to be. Uh, but like you said, we're a small country and we have to look outside our borders. Mm. And to do that, I mean, our international plans would include um, uh, developing countries. Um, I know that's the wrong word to use now, but uh, I would say economically disadvantaged countries right. or economically uh, growing countries. And that would mean a change in business model and how we deliver care. And mm. so... For example, in Kenya, um, very opportunistic uh, market for us. Um, but it's somewhere where we got into, we made a lot of friends. And care there would mean investing in healthcare infrastructure like small clinics um, and planting those devices in these small clinics to actually make real change. Hmm. We can't just throw devices at them and hope something will happen hmm. uh, or they will happen to use it in the right way. We've got to invest in the infrastructure and we've done just that. We have given an entrepreneurial midwife a small amount of money together with a local businessman. And we're encouraging him to build a high-tech clinic of the future. And that's the way we hope to impact this world. It's mm. not just through building one device, but making change happen in a real and meaningful way, even if that takes a while. Mm. Interesting. So it's almost like a, you know... I mean, if Kenya is a good example, isn't it? That there's been some really interesting sort of grassroots innovations, like in the mobile space and in payments, and yep. even in like micro lending as well. So, and it's always sort of happened that that very local, small social groups of women usually have sort of developed stuff together. So, you know, does that exist in other markets? Probably does, right? You know, if you go to India and like rural India, for example, um, you'll find that as well. So, I guess over time, if you can get the unit price down. You know, to to an extent where you can make that feasible economically in these markets, it'd be very interesting. Yeah, so that's why we started by concentrating on the developed markets mm. and actually building that economies, the economies of scale. Uh, yeah. And so Australia, Singapore, Europe, natural first markets, uh, thought leaders in the field of obstetrics, but Kenya, uh, Indonesia, where grassroots, where women take charge, um, India. So I mean, the countless opportunities. Um, where we're looking at is markets where we have good partners and reliable partners to actually deliver the solutions. And just because we're not in a market doesn't mean uh, they're not ripe. It just means we haven't found the right partner to deliver that right. solution. Well, let's see what we can do to help you get there. We'll talk now about your journey and your funding. So if we can jump back into the, the pitch deck, the last couple of slides here, there's, there's a nice sort of um, chronological timeline of where you've come from and where you're going as well. Uh, before we discuss this, let, let's put it on the table, you're raising funds at the moment. 
so um, what's public at the moment? Can you talk about how much you're raising or like who you want to talk to or what stage you are in those conversations? Obviously, when you, you do this as well, people are going to watch this in the archive. So that would change. So that's the caveat, right? But right here, right now, what's the situation? Yeah. So we're raising half a million dollars at a pre-money valuation of five million Singapore dollars. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're using those funds to actually reach a stage prior to manufacturing and prior to software release. And for that, we're talking to angel investors, uh, small family offices, uh, who are very much aligned with our vision and mission, who understand that, that we have de-risked the company quite a bit. There's still a little bit to be de-risked, um, mm. but we're driving this towards a bigger raise in the middle of next year. Right. And yeah. so, so far, the profile of people who have come on board are doctors, engineers, entrepreneurs, uh, anyone who believes in a good team building a good solution. Mm. And that's exactly what we've got. We've raised more than half of the half a million dollars that we're looking for. If we exceed half a million dollars, I'm definitely not going to complain. Yeah. Uh, but this will lead us into a bigger raise in the middle of next year where we're going to push manufacturing and regulatory approval as well. Right. So you're raising half a million to get you to that manufacturing stage. Where yes. Then you're going to have a larger raise, which will be probably early stage VCs, maybe family offices and so on. That's right. And we're looking to raise about four million US dollars right. uh, at that point. Okay. At which point it will drive the regulatory approvals. I mean, that yeah. tends to be a painful, even though it's shorter for our class of device. It tends to be a painful process, uh, mm. an expensive process, and manufacturing as well, yeah. which would be, I'd say, the valley of death for most startups. Uh, <laughs> how exactly. do we produce things that GE produces, um, yeah. but in an economically efficient way? Um, yeah, so I mean, that's why it's also important to sort of identify the kind of investors you want, because there's a lot of dumb money out there, people who just wanted to throw it, but you are, I guess, have an idea of the kind of people you want on board. You have, you know, medical professionals who may be high net worth individuals in later stages and maybe you know they have a bit more time they've done 30 40 years in the field they know what's broken those are the people that can bring a lot of expertise but you've mentioned a couple of interesting areas as well one being the the approvals so fda or what the whatever the the equivalents are in different markets um and that's somebody who you know you need experience and, and contacts and somebody who knows how to navigate that and the other part as well about manufacturing as well so what what kind of investors are you looking for, you know, in terms of what they bring to the table? And so, I mean, exactly. It's all about the motivation, experience, and skill set that people bring to the table. We look at our investors as part of our team. We don't look at them as money. Mm. Uh, and that's important because then people feel um, people actually contribute. And our team is no longer a team of five. We become a team of 10 now because of the fact that we have so much more input. We have so much more guidance. Mm. And so early on, the doctors, you're right, understand the problem. They understand what's broken. And early in the company, there tends to be a large amount of risk because there's a lot of unknowns. And doctors are willing to accept that risk um, because they know what can change. They know the possibilities. And then as you go along, the institutions come along. So NTU has been a tremendous help, mm. NTU and NUS. Um, they have provided a support on the regulatory front, on the business front, where how do you formulate a medical business plan, a medical technology business plan? And finally, government agencies like Spring Singapore, hmm. where early on in our life, um, how to build that fundamental layer of technology so that we can springboard into commercialization. Uh, Spring Singapore provided us a half a million dollar grant very early on in the company. So yeah, different investors, different motivations, different skill sets, all of which have helped to grow the company. Yeah. And we're so grateful for the help we've got so far. Great. Just finishing up, I want to look at your journey a little bit here on that timeline. If we just jump back in there, because it sort of gives it a bit of context 
from where we are. You started in 2017. Whereabouts did you start? When would you actually start? Start? What was day one? So we spun off a little prematurely, I have right. to say. Uh, but uh, 20, end of 2015 was actually where we kickstarted the cardiology bit. And right. we actually built the whole technology layer of the company. And 2017 is when we actually got going on the formal process. Mm. So we were an R&D company for about a year and a half. Mm. And now we, 2017, we've begun the formal process of developing a device to bring to market. Right. And that's where we began. And it's all about the regulatory. The regulatory has a process in which you have to design your devices and uh, go through safety tests. And so 2017 is where we did that. It starts off with assessing the market, do we want to do this? Are we going for it? Which markets are we going for? Which markets are we designing for? Um, stage one of the design, getting the requirements of the mothers, uh, the doctors, the hospitals, and all the stakeholders getting that set of requirements in. And right now we're building the devices according to those requirements. And that goes through a couple of iterations. Mm. Um, that goes through, you build, you test in a hospital. That's what Monash and a lot of the local hospitals are coming in. And coming back around, once we've stabilized all of that, uh, we'll go into probably a final clinical trial where it validates what we say we will do. Mm. Um, and that's important um, because that provides a lot of credibility for us. Yeah, and how long do those take normally? So for our type of device, we're looking at a small number of patients, so possibly mm. 50 patients. Mm -hmm. um, because of the type of study that's being conducted, like pharma studies tend to go on for like a year or two. Yeah, and uh, massive group sets, aren't they? So They have a lot of unknowns, but yeah. for us, the device itself has fewer unknowns. Mm and it's less risky. So therefore, a smaller number of patients would be required. 50 would be an approximate number. Um, we need to calculate that. And finally, once we do all that, we submit to the CE. So we're going for a CE mark. Mm -hmm. And uh, we submit to a notified body, a approved agency, which can sort of audit us. Mm -hmm. And through that, once we get approval, we are eligible to sell in you know, Europe. Right. Is, is, does that then, is that recognized globally, having a CE mark? I mean, is it sort of legitimate in terms of like, if you took that to Asia, would it make it much easier to get a, a stamp here? Or? Yeah. So CE and the FDA are the internationally known yeah. uh, regulatory bodies uh, for this. And because of the process is so thorough and the process is um, really drills down to the details of uh, what you do, um, that a lot of the international agencies accept it as... Uh, they'll provide you an accelerated pathway mm. uh, if you have a CE mark. For example, Australia, where they have a reciprocal agreement, um, where if you have a CE mark, you go through a month-long registration process, mm. for example. So that's why Australia is a first market, because with the CE mark, we can enter yeah. Australia much more easily. Singapore is a expedited pathway as well. So CE mark does provide us a lot of benefits in entering markets globally. Mm. Great. Well, it's exciting. And for you, I know it's a long process, but every day you're making gains and progress and you've got a great team with you, behind you, beside you. Um, from here on in, are you recruiting? Are you looking for more people? Because, you know, often people watch pitch deck shows. They're not necessarily always investors, but we have people who also want to join teams. They may be from the medical world. They may be the hardware builders, you know, that can help you. Is there a specific type of person you're looking for out there or hard skills? What's your situation with recruiting? And then, so, I mean, if you look at the slide on with the teams, uh, yeah. um, we have great capabilities in business development, uh, quality control systems, uh, engineering, clinicians sitting side by side with us, software engineers, largely a female team driving products uh, built for women. Mm. And I think that's very important for us. Uh, engineers, female engineers in particular, technical talent. And 
this is something that's really important to us. And I think females tend to get problems that they're solving for other women. Yeah. And so, yes, we are recruiting and we're looking to build on this really, really strong team and everyone super motivated. This is the core team that we have. Yeah, more of the same. And we're looking for more of the same. Uh, if you're determined uh, to solve major global problems around mm. female technology, uh, femtech in particular, um, if you're looking to solve clinical problems and you have software skills, engineering skills, we are always looking to talk. Um, and in particular, I mean, as we go towards the market, as we go towards uh, commercialization, um, marketing skills would be a lot more important as well. Yeah. PR communication, marketing yeah. skills. So we're very happy to talk. Um, as with every startup, uh, hiring and uh, employment is not the most structured process. Yeah. Uh, but what we need is motivation. If your motivation's aligned, we will get it done. Yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. It's not a structured process. You've got to speak to Amrish directly, right? This is how it works. And, you know, it's not necessarily about the 20 years you've done in X. It's about that attitude that they bring as well. You know, what can they do to help build this and put a dent in the universe and, you know, help sort of fulfill that vision that you're trying to build here. And it's knowing that we're not going to pay like a G well, or Phillips. And, exactly. Especially and in the medical community, this is important, right? I so. know. We need to put it out there. Like, <laughs> you know, we're not going right. to pay you a salary that allows you to live in a bungalow and stuff like that. Right, you know, right. it's, uh, you're exactly. going to be paid enough to live. Uh, but you know that when this succeeds, everyone succeeds together. Absolutely. Amrish Nair, everybody, co-founder and director at Biorhythm. It's been a real pleasure listening to your story and sharing that with us today. What would be the best way channel that people can connect with you? Do you have a preferred way that if people do want to reach out for whatever reason that they can contact you? Absolutely. So uh, one channel is LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, I generally get a lot of requests on LinkedIn and it's a great way for me to uh, see what's out there and for, to see what kind of skills people have, mm. uh, but also by email. So it's amrish at bio, B-I-O-R-I-T-H-M.com. Email would be the most effective way. Right. Uh, my wife complains about this all the time. It's Always in her email. Yes. Uh, so I will answer an email if you send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll put all the details in the show notes. Amrish, thank you so much today for coming here and, and sharing your journey with us. We wish you all the best and it'll be great as well because of where you are in your journey um, and you have that sort of pivotal moment coming next year as well where you'll start actually building the devices um it would be great to get an update so whether that's six months or 12 months come in come to the studio share your journey with us like let us know what's going on what have you learned you know what are the changes how have you evolved you know what's the team situation now and so on that'd be great because to see that sort of journey we've seen where you've come from to continue that journey with you would be fantastic yeah it's had a great time here and i'd love to come back thank you so much thank you Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.